Welcome to the third episode in an old season of Amazing Race Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Harmstone, and joining me as always is the Canadian who I have heard claim that the poll is the hard bit, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. And the lady whose children can't say the word ass in front of her, Michelle Pierce-Denovan. <laughs> Hi. I did change yours at the last minute, I will be honest. <laughs> oh, that's good. I don't think they have, actually. Have your children said ass in front of you? No. What words are they allowed to say in front of you? They don't say any of them. They say nice words. <laughs> Even though they hear phrases like, get up your little shits, otherwise I'm going to turn the hose off. <laughs> Correct. No, we just say nice words. Nice words. You can have a tinny between you because it's Anzac Day. Those sort of <laughs> phrases. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I'd actually tasted more alcohol at their age than they have. They haven't tasted anything, really. I think my eldest has tasted something, but because I grew up in a pub, my parents would say, here, try this, try this. I'm like, okay. I was going to say, am I wrong in thinking that your parents had a pub? No. No. Something in the back of my mind reminded me that, um, that your family owned pubs. Yeah. I remember distinctly my sister. I think she might have been, God. All of five? Tasting sherry? <laughs> Starting them young. Oh, yes. That's close, because I, I am tasted, tasted Terry. It rhymed. <laughs> oh, Logan. You are contributing to this conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's my lone, lone quote in this whole bit. <laughs> So yeah, what a fun episode again. We're going to get a rare example of a UK leg that I don't despise in this episode. It's quite the... I don't know if the leg has ever played out this way in terms of... You start leg three, and production tells you in order to get to the next country, you have to go back to where you were for leg one, or you have to go back to leg one's destination. And then the best way to get to the country where you need to be for leg three... From Lake One's destination, you go to the starting line city. Then from the starting line city, you then go to the Lake Three location. I can't recall another episode where that has happened. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird. And I would say, I think this could be considered the biggest flight scramble we will ever see on The Amazing Race. I believe we have 10 teams spread across seven different flight paths to get to the next country. And then even when they do get to the next country, they have to take a train to the city. And then once they're done with that next task, then they take a bus to another country. And then once there, they have to take a taxi to another town. And then they get to the next task. Yeah. I mean, obviously I can say these things. Cambridge is not that near to London. It's a fair train ride. It's a couple of hours. Yeah, it's like two or three hours from... How long do you think it would take to get there from landing in Heathrow? They probably won't have been able to get a direct train from Heathrow. So they probably had to change somewhere like London, Victoria. So it's probably two hours at least. Plus waiting time actually in, in the centre of London. Yeah, because I was thinking it probably took them about three, probably takes them about three hours from when they land. Well, I guess you have to clear through customs and everything. So it's probably when they show the flights arriving, when they show those arrival times. You probably have to add three or four hours to when they actually get into uh, Cambridge and Scudamore's. I have just 
quickly googled it, and this may be just because we're recording this at like 20 past 11 at night, but the suggested route is four and a half hours. Yeah, so they would at least have to change once by the look of things. You're looking at at least two hours from Heathrow to Cambridge, and that's if you hit it right. And you got to think that they took this route in 2002 as opposed to 2021, so I'm going to guess there was probably a little bit more inconvenience at that time. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was four hours, just based on the change of daylight for when teams get into when they get into Cambridge. So previously, 11 teams continued racing through Mexico. Zach led other teams on a wrong path, while Derek and Drew did the fast forward by flying with the Voladores. Five teams crashed on a bus ride to Cancun, while a roadblock saw teams swimming with dolphins. Derek and Drew checked in first, and Tramel and Talisha were part of a controlled explosion and eliminated from the race. And teams must now fly to London and make their way to Cambridge, where they will find their next clue outside a business called Scudamores. And they've got $440 for this leg of the race, and they have to fly via Mexico City. I must say, when they show the eat, sleep, and mingle with the other teams, that looks like a hell of a nice place to eat, sleep, and mingle with the other teams in Cancun. Yeah, yeah. something tells me that they're not going to get as nice accommodation in Aberdeen. <laughs> yeah. Aberdeen is many things, but I don't think it's going to be somewhere they're going to get that nice an accommodation. I wonder, I'm trying to remember, is this where they had elimination station for this season? I don't know. Because I don't think they were recording it at this point, so I don't think it was ever acknowledged. Yeah, yeah, they didn't have the they didn't start doing the elimination station segments till all first all stars, or the only all stars. But I can't remember if it was Mexico or Portugal that they used it. Say love using love using both countries. I'm just trying to think of which would be the most convenient for them. I was thinking about that last night too, because because on one hand it takes a while to get them back to Mexico. On the other hand, it would be a convenient place to be for the finish line, though, when they need to get everybody to Seattle. I think logically they probably go for Portugal, because if you think about it, most teams who are going to Elimination Station get eliminated this season in Europe. So it's much easier for them to send them to Portugal. Anyway, so what's funny about this episode is when Derek and Drew open up their clue, which again, it's another 12-hour pit stop, I think it was... They arrived at 3.16pm, they departed at 3.16am. 3.18. 3.18, pardon me off by two minutes. Uh, what's funny, when Derek and Drew open up the clue, and we get the explanation of, oh, they need to find Scudamores in Cambridge, and they must fly out of Mexico City and land in London, then take a train from London to Cambridge. It's like, man, that's a, there's so much to do. What's funny is that because of how long the flight, flight scramble takes, that in this 43-minute episode... Once we get to the 15th, I think the 15th minute of running time when Derek and Drew land in London, Phil actually has to get on the voiceover and repeat the clue again, just to (laughs) remind the audience because of how long it's been since the place was first mentioned. So in other words, production's thinking, man, the audience is going to forget where teams were supposed to even go, even though it's probably only been 20 minutes since they sat in front of the TV to watch the episode. Because this is before uh, TiVo and a lot of other, and before uh, PVRs and stuff where people can just skip ahead, right? Yeah, it's the same with Aberdeen, because when they come off the bus, Phil then has to repeat the Aberdeen clue, because it's been so long in the episode since Derek and Drew opened the clue to it in Cambridge. Yeah. Um, And also, Phil's wearing a white t-shirt. It's quite unusual. 
We don't see white t-shirts often. That's usually because if you see a white t-shirt and it then gets damp because, you know, they're going to the UK, that's usually a bad idea because you're going to see some Phil nipple. (laughs) (laughs) Phil's not going to compete with Derek and Drew in this season. He's decided (laughs) already. Even though Phil is much younger here, yeah, he he, he can try, but it's not going to quite work out for him. Yeah. And then we get, so Derek and Drew effectively have a one-hour lead on Aaron and Ariane, and more than that on the other teams. Yeah, it's Derek and Drew at 3.18am, Aaron and Ariane at 4.43, Heather and Eve at 4.44, Michael and Kathy 4.45, Flo and Zach 4.49, then Ken and Gerard at 6.02, John Vito and Jill at 6.52, Andre and Damon at 7.45, Dennis and Andrew 7.46, and Terry and Ian leaving in last at 7.47. That's the other thing that did not come across in the at the end of the previous episode too. That Andre and Damon, Dennis and Andrew and Terry and Ian were all a minute apart at the pit stop. Yeah, and the same with Aaron and Ariane, Heather and Eve, and Michael and Kathy were all a minute apart. Well, that 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 actually made sense because you you see all the teams in the same shot when they check in in the previous leg. But Terry and Ian, Dennis and Andrew, and Andre and Damon were all had their own shot. So I'm very curious, just like. How, how do they not see each other on the road when it's just one minute apart? <laughs> and of course, mm. I gotta say, this is the peak obsessiveness of the Twin Hunt storyline. They're so obsessed, Aaron and Ariane, with getting the twins out. And there are no mechanics in this season for them to get them out. There's no U-turn, no nothing. <laughs> I know we saw Ariane get them out last week, but that's literally the only them that are going to be got out this season. It's just annoying. Her saying, we're going to chase those twins and tell them who's boss. I mean, as if you're going to say anything to their face. Yeah, what are you going to do, chase them down and then what are you going to do, run them over with your car? I, I don't understand what they can really do all that much for now, given their current strategies. My favourite thing is how blasé Derek and Drew are about it, because by the end of this episode, they definitely know that this is a thing, and they don't care that this is a thing. No. <laughs> it seems like they like all of that attention. They're probably thinking, well, this gives us more airtime when four out of the other nine teams are going to be talking about us. There's some brilliant quotes at the start of this episode, though, because we do get Aaron and Ariane basically introducing themselves as the leaders of the twin hunt. Then we get Michael and Kathy saying they met in Cancun, not that this was mentioned at all last episode, because they don't care about Michael and Kathy in this season. Mm. My favourite part of it is that when they talk about how they met in Cancun, and Michael's like, yeah, it was great to to go back to the scene of the crime. I'm thinking, <laughs> that's not usually how you describe where you met in the, your, your, met your life partner, is, go, is going to the scene of the crime. Are Michael and <laughs> Kathy still together? I believe so. Because I was wondering that in the past couple of episodes that we've watched, whether whether they were still together or not. I know for sure they got married after the season was over. It, like, it happened pretty quickly. And then as far as I remember with the updates, there wasn't any indication of them splitting. And what's funny is that given that Jill has to eventually do the roadblock that's more designed for men, that John Vita refers to Jill as being ballsy. So we have some foreshadowing there. You've skipped over some brilliant bits from Flo and Zach, because we get another skip back to preseason. let's be honest, of Flo going, Zach is marrying material. She doesn't want to get involved with him and it just be a short-term thing. 
I mean, knowing what we know about whether they get together at the end of this season, that's an interesting quote. But also, mm-hmm. did you notice what Flo said when she got to Cancun Airport? And it's my favourite quote of the first three episodes. No. That whoever catches the twins gets a prize. Oh, yeah, I wrote that down. I thought that was Ariane, actually. I didn't see it. It's Flo. Yeah, it's Flo. And it's only in there as a sneaky editing joke. And it's specifically whoever captures a twin will win a prize. (laughs) And if you know how Flo's storyline works with the twins by the end of the season, that is a brilliant quote and a brilliant (laughs) sneaky editing joke. Because they threw in one, they threw in one in the second episode with Flo talking about the twins too. The full four team caravan was so odd because all four teams are all in about going after Derek and Drew, and then of course with Aaron and Ariane being the peak obsessive team about it to the point that Aaron says, "I want us to all pull over in the middle of this road and all have a plan." It's like so you're gonna pull over and say the plan is to book the best flight which you probably would have said when you meet in the airport parking lot i know it was annoying it is a revolutionary idea to book the best flight you possibly can but yeah i like how it's like okay we gotta pull over in the middle of nowhere and have this plan and then it's a really quiet throwaway quote where when they all pull over michael's like that's not a stop sign (laughs) we can't pull over here I think this is the first episode this season where it's really felt like the Amazing Race 3 that I remembered. I don't know what it was about Mexico, but Mexico, until they leave it, is less fun for Amazing Race 3. Whereas you get this episode, which is one of the only good UK ones, at least from my position. You get next episode, which is insane with the ending. You get episode 5, which is insane with Dieselgate. And then you get a team being detained in Morocco in episode six, is an absolute goldmine for these four episodes. Yeah, we're not not yet at the big controversy for this episode. Um, Can I quickly comment on the bongo? It sounded like bongo music at the airport. It was actually stressing me out. I was thinking, can you all just book a damn flight so we can get off the bongo music? It is potentially the most messy flight scramble we've ever seen. I know Logan said this early, but it is nuts. Yeah. I think the final tally is 10 teams split between, I mean, technically you could say more because not all teams are on the same flight from Cancun to Mexico City, but in terms of the arrival into London, I believe is spread between seven different flights. It's insane. That's definitely a record because you got to think the first couple legs in every season stays within the same country. And they always have that split. We're going to the first destination is split between two or three flights. The second leg, they don't really take flights most of the time, or it might be a domestic flight. So teams are bound to be uh, together. And then in other seasons, they typically only have nine teams left by the start of leg three. Here we still have 10. So I think this has got to be a record to have seven different flight paths for 10 teams. Do you think you would have flown to Mexico City straight away, or would you have booked everything in Cancun? I think you might want to book everything in Cancun, but I wouldn't want to try and book four teams at the same time for a flight all the way through. Exactly. Because it's not that you're booking eight tickets, you're booking 16 tickets. That's a pretty big jump. 
because they keep going to calendars like, oh no, we don't have 16 tickets available on one hour's notice. I'm sorry. <laughs> to get you all the way to London, England from Cancun. I'm, it's, just, it's just not going to happen, guys. I think I would have probably, maybe in 2002, had a look at the Internet Cafe and tried to work out what flight route I wanted to do and then made a decision on whether I was flying straight to Mexico City or not. Yeah, they were so fast at wanting to just book any damn thing that I thought, oh, some of you are just not thinking straight. This is in the era of people being able to book as many flights as he wanted, though. Yeah. That's the other thing to bear in mind, is the fact that there was absolutely no repercussions for them booking 50 flights at the same time. And what's funny here, when the four, when Aaron and Ariane, Heather and Eve, Michael and Kathy, and uh, Flo and Zach, when they're all trying to book flights together, where Heather and Eve are in the charge of, no, we want to book flights now before we even get to Mexico City. Otherwise, the trailing teams can book while we're in the air and take up all the seats, which is a very legitimate point to make. Hmm. But Michael and Kathy are having none of it because after going from two minutes ago where Michael said, uh, within the race, I'm clicking with all these teams in my alliance, maybe outside of the race, I don't click with them so much, to right at that point where Michael says, Heather and Eve, I just don't like chicken heads barking in my ear. <laughs> Thinking maybe he doesn't click as well with the teams inside the race as well as he thought he did. Going back to something you said last episode, Heather and Eve are coming across very well in this episode as well, with them having the correct tactic here. 100% you take a step back and you think about your tactics. Yeah, well, I would say Heather comes across really well in this episode. Eve, not so much. Because it continues the plot line of Eve whines about everything. I think if we were doing Edgic here, Heather would get a very good rating again in this episode. Just like she would have done in episode two. Maybe not so much next week. It's kind of funny. It's like Heather and Eve are their own version of Flo and Zach in terms of the relationship between the two. In terms of, like, Heather is carrying half of Eve's stuff, apparently. Eve doesn't do too well in any task that's given to her. <laughs> Heather's the one who is leading the charge on different decisions. Talking of people who come across very well, at least up to this point in the episode, Ian seems very nice in this bit. He's very <laughs> thankful, very apologetic to people. He just says he's 50 years old and wants to get to the end of the race. Yeah, he wants to be at the, at, there at the end, and his I can't believe Ian's going to say this, but he says he's starting to have fun in this race. But <laughs> I have a feeling that goes away when you're on the final bus, knowing you're probably at least six hours behind all of the other teams in the race. Yeah, I'm not sure Ian's going to have much fun in the next couple of episodes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're not at the episode five start. No, that's an interesting one. So Dennis and Andrew are the only team who are actually left behind in Cancun in the end, and Dennis grins when Andrew lies about having a sick mother. And I'm not sure my father would grin if I lied about my mum's health. But Dennis is just smiling from ear to ear about it. Yeah, it's a Cheshire cat grin. It is Albana this week. <laughs> and I have to mention too, with he- even though Heather does have the correct tactic of thinking things through and trying to plan ahead, uh, Ken and Gerard still slip into a flight before the Alliance does. Yeah, because yet again, Ken and Gerard are competent. Yeah. They have such brilliant confessionals, these two, where they say, the other teams are fit, good-looking, in the lead. We're not fit, we're not good-looking, and we're not in the lead. 
but we've got spunk. <laughs> See, because I'm a nice person, I didn't want to do a spunk-themed intro for either of you this week. <laughs> but we've got spunk. That's all we got going for us. I thought about it for about half a second and then went, no, Michelle's going to shout me down if I describe either of them as having spunk. Oh, yes. And we get one of the... Because Derek and Drew, for whatever reason, it's just a complete breeze for them to get the earliest flight path to London, which will be amusing in a little bit. And Michael and Kathy and Aaron and Ariane ditch Flo and Zach and Heather and even Cancun and just say, screw it. We're going to book this these flights through Miami. And the craziest part is they book a flight that only has a 40-minute layover in Miami. And this is very surprising because this is just after 9-11 too. Maybe in the late 90s, 40-minute layover, it's, uh, from what I've heard, could have been possible for an international connection. I don't know if I'd want to do that in 2002, let alone now. Yeah. And also... From personal experience, America is not the easiest place to fly into, depending on which airport you're flying into. If you fly into Orlando, for example, you're going to be waiting two hours in customs queues, easily. If you fly into Boston, then you pretty much walk straight up, from my experience. So you'd need to pick your airport in America very carefully. And I certainly wouldn't have transferred planes in America, given the choice, because it's so variable depending on where you're flying through. And I certainly wouldn't have done a 40-minute layover in an American airport. Because you're just asking for trouble. Yeah, even Michael says on the plane saying, this 40-minute layover just seems impossible. Well, why did you book it then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess because they're not playing for $2 million. And somehow, I think this is one of the very, very few times this happens. They get, they get upgraded to business class for free. Yeah, how good's that? But uh, since it's in Miami, I, I don't know how long they would have been stranded in Miami anyway, even if they missed that flight. Yeah, I know Logan and I have discussed this before, but what's your policy on a minimum amount of time for a layover, Michelle? Oh, international? Yeah. Yeah, if you're flying internationally, what's the lowest amount of time you would want to have as a layover? At least an hour. Because you don't know, when you, some planes, especially at the American airports, you have to get on a bus and then you have to get between terminals and things can go wrong. I, I mean, even an hour is not good. Yeah, I would, I would never ever do an hour. Yeah, I'm very much of the opinion that you get to an airport if you're just flying internationally at least two hours early, if not three. Oh, yeah. When we go anywhere, yeah, we're, we're at least two hours, maybe two and a half. Yeah, that's used. That's what we do, too. I don't book a connection that is less than about two hours, given the choice, just in case stuff goes wrong. Even two hours makes me nervous. <laughs> that's if I can trust the airports, <laughs> and I know what the airports are like. Mm. Yeah, that contributes to it, too, if you know exactly which terminal you're going to and how to get there. But if you're not familiar with a, a really big airport, maybe you're safe going for three. Because even with even with two hour layovers, you're you're hustling pretty good most of the time. So I can't imagine trying to do forty minutes. Yeah. And Derek and Drew beat everybody into London by three hours and twenty minutes from my calculations. Amazing. They are very good racers, and this may be why people are so scared of them and want to hunt them down. 
maybe that learning curve is already over for them by episode three, where they've really figured things out. Maybe that first episode is where they just were getting used to the race. I mean, they didn't show themselves to be very good racers in the first two episodes, really. No, but it's like we said in the premiere, in this era of Amazing Race, it's very balanced between teams that are good at challenges and teams that are good at navigation. And Derek and Drew seem to have a very good nous for navigation, at least in this episode. Mm-hmm. They managed to sniff out a better flight connection than Ken and Gerard, and that's saying something. Ken and Gerard are very, very good at flight connections and navigation and that sort of stuff. And they become a very dangerous alliance when they come together next episode. But yeah, it's funny. Derek and Drew beat Aaron and Ariane and Mike, or I guess Ken and Gerard. They beat Ken and Gerard into London by three hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, because the first flight's Aaron and Ariane, Derek and Drew, and Michael and Kathy all together, I think. And then they beat... Dennis and Andrew into London by 27 hours. So once they do get to Cambridge, which apparently was from King's Cross. Yeah, I was thinking when I when we were looking at the footage, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's King's Cross. Yeah, a train station that Logan knows very well because it's not still your Facebook profile picture, but I did take a picture of Logan that used to be his profile picture from King's Cross station when Logan flew over and uh, him jumping at the Harry Potter memorial thing. Would that have oh. already been there by 2002? No, that wouldn't have been there. I think they put it up sometime around when the last book came out, which was 2007. Waiting in that line to stand by the wall. Oh, my God. It took, I think we were in the line for an hour and a half. I can believe it. Yeah, oh we were there God. for a good half an hour, 45 minutes, I'm pretty sure. To be fair, we did have a while <laughs> to, yeah. to, kind of, to kind of wait. So we had more than enough time for you to go with the trolley. <laughs> the things we do. <laughs> so yes, Derek and Drew are the first flight into London. Aaron, Ariane, and Michael and Kathy are the second flight into London. Ken Gerard are the third flight into London. Plo and Zach and Heather and Eve are the fourth flight into London via Paris. Uh, and then this is when Phil cuts in to say, oh yeah, by the way, they're going to this place called Scudamore's in case you've forgotten. I have just um, just Googled it. Apparently the Platform nine and three quarters sign was first erected in nineteen ninety nine. Oh, well, the first book came out in ninety seven, so that would there would be three books at that point. I don't know when the trolley was put on. It's not on Wikipedia. Hmm. But yeah, once teams get to Scudamore's, they find out it is a detour, which is punt or bike, and we know which one Logan would have picked. In punt, teams have to travel along the river using a punt and grab their clue from the bridge. And in bike, teams have to board a tandem bike and grab their clue after a six-mile ride from the same bridge. Once again, I know we're already a broken record with this by episode three, but we have yet another task where it's just a matter of trying to find, use a form of transportation to find this next clue. In fact, this is the second detour in a row where it's like, pick something that's fast to get to your next clue or pick something that's, that's slow to get to your next clue. I think bike might have been the better choice. Really? Yeah, for two reasons, both kind of themed around the same idea. One, bikes are entirely by your own volition, so you can control the speed on it. And two, more importantly, it's going to be less busy. You can at least avoid people significantly easier if you're on a tandem bike than if you are on a punt on a very busy river camp. Unless it's the evening. When Andre and Damon and Terry and Ian go, there was nobody on that river. 
in the evening, punting is probably better and probably safer. I would be very surprised if they weren't strongly nudged towards punting because I'm not sure you'd want to cycle the dark streets of Cambridge at night. But when it's busy and when everyone's out on the river, it's significantly easier to bike in terms of getting your speed up. I reckon you could easily go six times faster on a bike at that time of day than on a punt. Yeah, it was six miles versus one mile, right? Yeah, because you, you'd you probably only need to do maybe maybe 12 miles an hour on a bike, which is doable, especially when you've got two people doing it. Well, if Andre and Damon did the bikes, they, would, they wouldn't be following the marked course. Um, is it flat? Is Cambridge flat? Cambridge is pretty flat, yeah. Cambridge is, as you probably well know, a very studenty place, so a lot of people cycle in Cambridge, just as they do in Oxford. It's the main form of transportation for most students, is on a bike. Okay. In Oxford and Cambridge. I think you'd have a much easier time getting the clue from the bike side rather than the punting side. Obviously, they wanted people to do punt because of the comedy of Ken and Gerard constantly falling in. Oh, my God. I've never seen a team have such an audience for a comedy of errors. <laughs> yeah, I think appropriately on balance, I think bike would be the easier choice to get the clue. And yet nobody on bike was ever faster than any of the punters. No. Maybe there was a lot of traffic on the streets that we just didn't see. But on the face of it, if I was faced with just punt or bike, I would probably lean towards bike because it's less skill-based and more human-powered. So you can control your own fate. I would have done punt. I'm not bad at steering those sort of things. Um, But Ken, was he the one that fell in first? No, Gerard. Gerard fell in twice. Oh my God, the second fall, I literally, it was just one of those things, you know, when you're watching something and you're like, okay, okay. And then all of a sudden you just burst out laughing and you just, it's just spontaneous. Oh my God, that second fall in was so good. (laughs) Well, because he almost does a flip into the the river. (laughs) So good. And the fact there's people on the bridge who are laughing at him. And then there's also people in the other punt boats around him too. Because he's doing it first and he's like, oh wait, no, no, I screwed that one up. I'm in the water. And then everyone's laughing. And then <laughs> since it's still the same crowd and then he does the flip this time where the pole gets completely <laughs> stuck and then flips over and then everyone just absolutely loses it. And that's when Jared's like, oh, come on. It's your turn, you fat ass. And pushes him into the <laughs> and water. <then> <laughs> I love it. So once teams grab their clues from the bridge, they have to sign up for charter buses to Aberdeen, Scotland, the first of which departs at 7.30pm. And once there, they have to get a taxi to Donata Castle to find their next clue. And if I thought four hours between three buses was long, how about six hours between buses? That is a long way. That means you can't catch up. Well, especially when the roadblock and the pit stop are in the same location and the roadblock doesn't look like it's the most time-consuming task in the world. Do you think that production weren't anticipating people being that quick at getting into Cambridge? Because I don't think they would have planned for those charter buses to to leave at 7.30pm and leave such a gap for certain teams if they thought teams were going to find a fast flight. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question if that was designed from the start. What's funny, too, is that they do, Michael and Kathy don't get grilled as much this episode for for taking punt, because Michael's excuse this week 
for not choosing the faster detour option is because he would look too corny on a bike. Oh my god. Yeah, it's just a corny thing for couples to do to go on a tandem bike ride. Yeah, he's not the corny type. He's a pathetic type. That's what he is. Before this season, I would not have had money on Michael being the one that Michelle hates the most. (laughs) I really don't like him. God, he is not a nice person. Well, when he did, he did refer to an all-female team as chicken heads, which, which, uh, if if I recall my California cess line correctly, that refers to women who are quite promiscuous. <laughs> nice. Why? How did that? How does? How do those two things even go together? I don't know. I learned that from the Chappelle Show. Oh God. <laughs> and then we have. Yeah, Aaron and Ariane and Flo and Zach both choose bike. And we get an entertaining bit when Flo and Zach finish the detour because initially Flo goes underneath the bridge, but she can't reach to get the clue. And then we have yet again for the second episode in a row of Flo yelling at Zach saying, why are you leaving me here? And then Zach's like, oh, don't you, don't you have feet? <laughs> oh, I had such flashbacks to Haley in Amsterdam with Flo screaming at Zach. I mean, I love any of these type of characters. I've made no secret of that, but I had such flashbacks to Haley berating Blair in the middle of Amsterdam when Flo was stuck with legs on different boats, can I point out? Yes. Just going, help me, Zach, help me, help me, Zach, help me. And then the best part is then Zach figures out a way to get the clue from on top of the bridge. I think for Aaron and Ariane, they needed Michael and Kathy to actually grab the clue for them because they couldn't reach either. It's not just a flow thing. And then they retrieve the clue and then Flo's like, oh, great idea, Zach. I'm sorry I yelled at you, but you left me on a boat out there and you forgot about me. I think by her own admission, I think she said this when when she rejected um, All Stars that... Amazing Race brought out the worst in Flo, and she's not like that in real life. She is actually a genuinely nice person, I think, but it just brings out all the worst traits in her, including kind of screaming at Zach a lot. There's not a single contestant who has said a bad thing about Flo after this season airs. There's a lot of fans who've said bad things about Flo after this season has aired, even 19 years later. Oh, trust me... I've gotten three different comments on the article about Flo in the past two weeks alone saying, what? No, Flo is horrible. Flo is terrible. Especially from this point in the season. I will warn you now, if you don't like Flo, you're going to be very opposed to the things that we say. Because Flo is an amazing character. She is an absolute amazing race icon. And despite some of her slightly highly strung behavior, as I think she would admit herself, she is so important to this season and so important to this show and we will be championing flow a lot in these episodes from next week it starts getting a little bit more heated with flow and the sort of things where people bitch about flow a lot more yeah i don't i don't see a problem with her so far we will be championing people like flow and like terry and ian a lot and that will probably not surprise anyone given some of the public statements that especially Logan and I have made in the past about Flo and Zach, given I think we managed to somehow make them number one team on the Amazing Race rank down on Reddit. Yeah. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, Logan. I think we did. Yeah. 
I think somehow we game theoried them and Brooke and Scott into the top ten. <laughs> I, I did my own list, but but everyone, I think people were able to plan around what they expected me to rank Chloe and Zach. I did not participate in any collusion. I did. I made no secret of that. But Flo especially is such an important character to the season and such an important character to the show. And if you're coming into these podcasts somehow, given you listen to us, thinking that we're going to be hard on Flo or anything, you're 100% wrong. And what's funny here is we get Derek and Drew, they open up the clue and yeah, we get the buses. And I guess it was before it was they got there around noon because they said, oh, we have seven hours until the first bus leaves. So I guess we're going to have lunch. They're sunbathing. Ken and Gerard show up and then Gerard is playing with this weird piece of string on his finger while he's chatting with them, which always cracks me up anytime I see this scene. Really? Where he's just, just spinning around his finger like this with one the one of the old, oldest contestants in the whole race is just like playing with this piece of string like a cat. <laughs> he's like, you know what? And then this is probably the start of Ken and Gerard and Derek and Drew wanting to align because they say, you know what? I don't get the whole reason why everyone should be obsessed with getting them out. They actually might be able to benefit us down the road. I think we might want to align with them. I think by their own admission, Ken and Gerard are the complete opposites of Derek and Drew in terms of the skill sets that you would see on an amazing race, just on the surface of it, which makes them brilliant partners because they can help each other in future. And in tasks where collusion is not banned, that is a very helpful thing to have some other team in your corner. And let's see, we get 5.47pm flight arrival for Andre and Damon, then I think about 6.30 for Terry and Ian. That puts Terry and Ian 12 hours behind Derek and Drew's flight. Jeez. So, and then they still, and by the time they get all the way out to Cambridge, it's definitely pitch black and dark outside. And then my favorite part when Team Slowly starts showing up to the 7.30 bus is Ken's facial expression at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> and then Schwartz's like, oh, we were hoping Aaron and Ariane would be stuck in Miami for a couple more hours. Because when, when Heather and Eve, Flo and Zach, Michael and Kathy and Aaron and Ariane all show up at that first bus... It's like when it's like the first day of 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 school in in high school where everyone had just seen each other at a party like two or three days before, but it's, they pretend like oh we haven't seen each other in so long. What did you do all summer? It's like come on guys, you all saw each other and got drunk last week. Come on, <laughs> you can't kid us. So yeah, all six of those teams get to be on the that seven thirty p.m. bus, and they're gonna, and then they're like well. I guess everyone else is going to be on that second bus, so at least we'll have a big two-and-a-half-hour jump ahead on everybody else. And then you think that they're just re-showing the same clip of Aaron and Ariane talking about Derek and Drew, but these have all been separate confessionals in clips because this one is very clearly from the bus where Ariane's like, our goal was to catch up to the twins and pursue the twins, and we got them. No more advantage of them. They've got nothing but good looks and straight teeth. They are really good in confessional Aaron and Ariane. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't take another shot at Michael and Kathy for doing the punting. Unless it was too brutal for them to air on TV, given the the donkey and kayaking confessional from the second episode. You can only imagine what was actually cut from Aaron and Ariane's confessionals, I think. Yeah. And then John Vino and Jill are just 
for the second episode in a row, I they don't see any other... They're not the back of the pack. They're not the front of the pack. They're just right in the middle doing their own thing. They finish punting, and then the big little bit of suspense for this episode is, will they make this 10 p.m. bus? Because we get a whole cliffhanger into a, into a commercial about it. But then I'm thinking, would the bus just take off with nobody on it? I think the bus is going to wait a couple extra minutes. It's not just going to start driving away with nobody inside. Yeah, I think so. It would be very funny, though. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, <laughs> I guess I'm driving to Aberdeen now <laughs> all by myself. <laughs> and it's like a 12-hour bus ride. I did have a look at how long that bus ride is, by the way. It's eight hours. Eight and a quarter hours. Yeah, in optimum conditions, it is eight hours and five minutes. It is 473 miles, which is half of the Cancun bus ride. It's insane. I mean, the the fast forward, they didn't even have a chance. In the space of a week here, they have done a 24-hour bus ride traveling over a thousand miles from Mexico City to Cancun. And then a few days later, after doing a very long haul flight or two, or three in some cases, they do another eight hour bus ride that is 473 miles. I think it has to be longer than eight hour bus ride because it's very much daylight out when they get into Aberdeen. That was according to Google. No, well, I I did it on trip, not trip, I did it on some trip um, website and it said eight hours, 15 minutes. Yeah, eight, eight hours, five was as of about an hour and a half ago, so of an evening. So about 10 o'clock in the evening. So pretty much the John Vito and Jill time. It's eight hours and five minutes. But it's 473 miles from from um, the the common or whatever they called it, Parker's Peace. From Parker's Peace all the way to the castle is 473 miles. Would it have been longer back then? Would it have been added an extra hour maybe? No, because they've not, they haven't changed any of the British motorways in terms of where okay. they actually are for years. I assume there had to be more stops for the buses then, because otherwise it, the 7.30 p.m. bus would have gone into Aberdeen at 3.30 in the morning, and I don't think it would have been that long inside. I think there was only one driver, so the driver would have had to stop for half an hour every two hours or whatever. Right. Yeah. Le- legally. Yeah, I just I assumed it was like a 12-hour bus ride. If you did it non-stop, it's eight hours, five minutes. Well, that's what the limo would have done, I suppose. Yeah. Which we'll get to in quite a while. (laughs) (laughs) The limo still would have stopped because there was only one driver for that, so he still would have uh, had to stop at the service stations. Really? Yeah, because if if he's a professional driver, then legally he's only allowed to drive for two hours at a time. They just put a cameraman in there. Hey, drive this car. (laughs) I mean, depends on the insurance, but they may have had a a second driver or something to, to give Dennis and Andrew some sort of advantage, but... Officially, if it's just one driver, he's got to stop every two hours for a break. I can't think of any other country that has that rule. We have a lot of lorry drivers and stuff who come through the UK and the various routes. So it is a health hazard if you have lorry drivers, especially working four hours at a time on the road and slowly falling asleep. Yeah. Because if you think, when I drove you back from Hull, when we did the Hull to Rotterdam weekend... That was that was about two hours, and I was dropping by the end of that. Those were some hairy motorways, to be fair. Yeah. I mean, there there's a horrible section of motorway that Logan and I, or that I drove Logan on when we were coming back from that, that is 
it's the highest motorway in the UK and it is exposed on both sides and it was quite a windy day so I was having to grip onto the wheel to stop the car being blown across lanes basically wow that's a joy I do remember that now <laughs> yeah it is not a pleasant stretch of road to drive on I've only that is the only time I've actually driven on that stretch of road but it's quite an infamous stretch of road but it's the oh. uh, it's the highest stretch of motorway in uh, in the UK, and it is very very high up in the Pennines. Okay. So yeah, with John Vito and Jill, I just it seems a bit much that that they got at that bus at nine fifty nine p.m. Thinking even if it was ten o one or ten o two, I think they're gonna get on that bus. I mean, there's no because it, it'd be different if there was one team on there. Then it would be really unfair. But the fact that it was completely empty, it's like well. Are they really just going to make that bus take off with nobody inside and waste all of that fuel? <laughs> the best thing is they are taking off at 10 o'clock in the evening and Dennis and Andrew are still 12 hours behind that. Yeah, I have I have thoughts on the whole controversy there. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And then at 10.15pm is when Andre and Damon start punting and then... Ian has yet another, I can't see, Terry, I can't see. And this one's even better because <laughs> the whole conflict here is they first get to the to Scudamore's and, and then Terry is trying to look inside the shop and it's like, the box is over here, let's go. <laughs> and then waits for Terry to open up the clue and then he's like, come on, open it up, open up this detour clue, don't got all day. <laughs> and then Terry is steering or, ter- or Terry's paddling and then Ian says, it doesn't say how you gotta do it. Just, just do it. Haven't you ever paddled a boat before? Like he's just being absolutely brutal here. And why doesn't he know if she can paddle a canoe? They've been married for years. Asking her, don't you know how to paddle a canoe? I mean, you should know that, Ian. He remembers that they took Iro Mexico from Miami to Mexico City on their honeymoon. I think he should know if she's paddled a boat before. Yeah. My favourite thing is, in the past two episodes, the only conflict that we have seen between Terry and Ian has been on some sort of water vehicle. And how are Terry and Ian introduced in the intro and actually when they do their first confessional? It's on a boat. Yeah, but he drives that boat. It's like his baby. Yeah, but all of the conflict has been to do with boats or jet skis or punting. And then we have them who are literally introduced wearing wetsuits on a boat in Florida. With Ian doing his best Miami Vice impression. Yes. <laughs> I had a very good look at their head turn. I just kept doing it. Oh, I um, love it. I kept rewinding it. It was just like, it's so, it's delivered with such precision and they look like they're ready to murder somebody. <laughs> they're not happy. <laughs> There is just so much that is right about Terry and Ian's head turn, and I know I've done this this entire diatribe many, many times, but they are the gold standard of head turns. They are the pinnacle of every head turn that we see in an intro. Is hmm. all because Terry and Ian are so frigging good at doing it in this season. It's amazing. And then their argument in the boat is just so damn funny, with Ian saying, I can't see Terry. But there's no sign, Ian. I can't see Terry. Let me let me look at the map. How are you going to see it? <laughs> so deadpan. It's just so deadpan. If you don't like Terry and Ian at this point in the season, there's no hope for you. They're just brilliant. 
And then when they get to the bus, because Andre and Damon get to the bus before them, because they had a good 45-minute jump on them. And Andre and Damon are at the last bus. And then Terry and Ian show up to the bus, and they're like, oh, we are not last. We are tied for last with one <laughs> other team. And then the bus leaves at 1.30, and over eight hours after the bus, the final bus leaves Cambridge, over eight hours later, Dennis and Andrew get into get into uh, London. They're still twelve hours behind that final bus, which departed six hours after the first bus, which Derek and Drew had to wait seven hours for. So it's like a twenty-seven or twenty-eight hour jump that Derek and Drew had on Dennis and Andrew going into Heathrow. And we also had an introduction to Scotland, and I do have to point this out because of my previous rant on a Belgian mole podcast, but the one way that they introduce us to Scotland is, of course, Satan's instrument, the bagpipe. I love the bagpipes. I love them. Bagpipes are the worst instrument ever created. <laughs> no, they're good. They're, if you can play them well, they're good. It's only if you hear kids trying to play them. The problem is, no one can play a bagpipe well and make it actually pleasant to listen to. No one. My original uh, elementary school principal, he retired, I think, after two years, and then he always came back each year for the Remembrance Day assembly just to play the bagpipes. And then I guess for quite a while he still plays bagpipes off or uh, he still plays bagpipes on Canada Day. I'm not so sure about this year. Did he only come back with his bagpipes because bagpipes make people want to commit war crimes? I, I don't know if that was his motivation mm. or not. We never had that conversation. I, I went to the, what is it called? Um, what, what's the thing called in Edinburgh? Edinburgh Tattoo. I went twice. I grew up watching the Edinburgh Tattoo, watching bagpipe people play. Oh, God, no. <laughs> So here's my big question for this episode. What if Terry and Ian or Andre and Damon had taken the fast forward this episode and Dennis and Andrew couldn't go for it? Like they go all the way out to Oxford. Sorry, fast forward taken. Now you're 30 hours behind <laughs> Derek and Drew. And the last bus left 10 hours ago, probably 14 hours ago by the time the end of Cambridge. What the hell happens to Dennis and Andrew? I don't know, but also they've previously established that the one thirty a.m. bus was the last bus. Yeah, so that's they what I mean. Have, they would have to put another bus on anyway. But also, more importantly, we didn't see where the fast-forward clue appeared. We're assuming it was in the first clue, but it's the first time all season. We haven't seen which clue it appeared as a part of. Mm. Yeah, we assume it's the first one. Otherwise, it would have been... I mean, they didn't even get into Heathrow until 10 a.m. And if it took them four hours to do the detour and then go from the fast forward from there, that first bus would have all been checked into the pit stop, if not the first two buses. Would they have flown Phil back down to Cambridge and said, oh, can you tell them they're out of the race? They might have had to. So I'm thinking if the fast forward was taken and then they get all, and they get, they're already way behind, I mean... The crazy thing is, yeah, they would have been probably by the time they were done the detour and showed up at that at that Parker's Pieces or Parker's Piece or whatever the hell it's called. I'm going to guess they would have been 14 hours the final, after the final bus already left. 
But even though that final bus could have still been out on the road, I'm going to guess production's thinking, we can't wait another 14 or 16 hours after the final bus, after the final two teams check in. We can't wait that long before we keep going again. They would have had to make it a 36-hour pit stop just to stop that happening, I think. I think so. Maybe maybe they do. Maybe they just say, okay, we'll put them on a bus or some other vehicle or I don't, I don't know. But they tend to have the next day stuff already planned. I mean, they'd find it really tricky to suddenly change a 12-hour pit stop to 36 or 24 if they planned for 12. It would have been tougher for the next episode too because they do have a roadblock that involves a bunch of local teenagers. <laughs> I'm sure they could find more local teenagers who want to appear on American television. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the different stuff they were doing the next leg. I don't know how much they would have been able to adjust it. And the pit stop greeter, the the poor Scottish dude, had to hang around for hours and hours on end. They would have had to feed him. Was he there for the for yes, Dennis and Andrew's check? I did mean to check on that, but I couldn't remember whether he was. Yeah, he was there. Now, whether they spliced him in. I don't know whether we got a wide shot, but he was featured. But yeah, it's just one of those big, like, it's early on enough in the series where they do have the time to let a trailing team try to get to the pit stop. But I guarantee you, if this was a newer season, well, even with how long the bus was, though, Phil would still have to be in Aberdeen waiting for teams. It's just that the journey was so long by bus. It would be Mm -hmm. like if they had those two... 24-hour bus rides in the last episode and then have a team that doesn't get on a 24-hour bus until 24 hours after everybody else. It's like, well, the leg is still going on by the time they get in there, so it's not like Phil. Phil can't be in two places at once, right? So don't know what they would have done. Can they get a train? Train would have been better. Yeah, maybe that's an, another option. I don't. I just don't know what they would have, what, what good scenario they could have had to be able to not be held up for 12 or 16 hours. <laughs> mm. But yeah, just one of those one of those fun what-if games if you're a production in the early season with the way that this leg was set up. Yeah, it was set up terribly mm. from a production standpoint. And Dennis and Andrew go for the fast forward and they take it and and then, yeah, well, I guess we'll still, we still have to get to their elimination because fans still complain about it to this day legitimately cool fast forward i have to say i know i said this about the voladores one this is another legitimately cool one that i can guarantee the imperial war museum does not normally do the imperial war museum having been to an imperial war museum because there's one in manchester there is not a chance in hell that they normally allow people to drive tanks not a chance i think it's the only time anybody's ever been allowed to drive a tank on the amazing race and apparently Dennis is really, really good at driving tanks. Yeah, who'd have thunk? But yeah, legitimately cool fast forward. Obviously, given it's Dennis and Andrew and we had like two confessionals from them this entire episode, one of which was Andrew reminding us at the start about how him being gay split up his and his dad's relationship. You know full well they're getting eliminated. And this is just a nice this is just a nice character scene for them to go, we've had some sort of fun adventure and also wine. Yeah, they get. That's funny because Phil says to celebrate their their battle victory, Dennis and Andrew now get to take a limo directly to the pit stop. I do have to point out that anyone who has been a tank commander or whatever does not then return to base and get a chauffeur-driven limo back home with a bottle of wine. Yeah, 
<laughs> the ball of wine, maybe, but definitely yeah, not a chauffeur limo. I can't imagine that happening in World War One or World War Two. It's obviously just a, a mechanism for them to try and get Dennis and Andrew up to Stonehaven quicker. But also, it's a bit of a dichotomy between big macho tank challenge and limousine ride with wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those two things don't normally come together very well. And this is the biggest Dennis and Andrew highlight for me. Because when they get into that limo and Andrew opens the ball of wine going into the commercial break, he makes the funniest sound when he when he uncorks the bottle. <laughs> it gets me every single time when he does that. When he just freaking uncorks that bottle of wine. It's such an over-the-top reaction. To be fair to Andrew, given what we were saying earlier... He's 21 and he's only just turned 21. He's not really been able to have a legal drink. It's pro- Yeah, it could be the first time he's uncorked a bottle. And it's just the, just the sounding that comes out of his body. I've never heard <laughs> that sound come out of a human being before. <laughs> I don't think that, that Andrew has, has had much experience in uncorking wine. We really need that to be a soundbite inserted right here because it's so, so damn funny. I don't know why, but that's like the one thing I remember about this episode. It's like, oh yeah, Andrew's going to make that one sound when he finishes the fast forward. <laughs> He's going to make his wine squeal. <laughs> the wine squeal, yeah. <laughs> so once teams do get to the castle, it is a roadblock, which is who's feeling a bit gamey. And in this roadblock, one team member must complete three activities that feature in the Highland Games, the caber toss, the hammer throw, and the shot put to get their next clue. And it is Ken, Derek, Heather, Aaron, Zach, Michael... Jill, Terry, and Andre doing this roadblock. I must say, that was a long scene in the taxis of all the taxis to overtaking Derek and Drew. There was there was a there was a mm. lot of time in the episode spent on it. There's a twin hunt going on. What can we say? Yeah, and Derek and Drew are just like, yeah, you're passing us. Good for you. And then Zach has the most amount of insight I've ever heard into a roadblock hint. Flo says, this person should be feeling gamey. And then Zach responds, so clearly it's a game of sorts. Bravo, Zach. Bravo. <laughs> I think Ben Owen may have a contender here, Michelle. <laughs> I have absolutely nothing to say about this roadblock, I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a really quick one, but it's a cool one. It's, I mean, it's the Scottish Highland yeah. Games. You do the classic caber toss, which has been featured in so many strongman contests. You have the hammer throw, which Heather is too strong for. Yeah, historically, Hmm. you do have to remember this context. Every single country in this season, apart from the US, had not been visited on Amazing Race before. It's an entirely new country season, and there's 13 countries in this season. Yeah. Mm, Interesting. And then we have shot put, which is meant to do overhand, but I don't think Aaron has ever seen shot put before because he tried to do it underhand at one point. He turned it into bowls. He was playing a game of Patonk out there. (laughs) And then Michael and Kathy are stuck with a taxi driver's like, oh, yeah, we're, yeah, you're in a hurry. We'll get there really quick. Oh, wait, I know nothing about Stonehaven. It's just a really small place. I figured it'd be the only place in all of Stonehaven. Nope. And she, the their taxi driver, has the most Scottish-sounding conversation I've ever heard between two Scottish women when the taxi driver asks for uh, for directions. Yeah, 
as much as that. Scottishness intensifies. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, there's really nothing else to really say with this. The six teams doing the roadblock, other than that Sir William Wallace is the pit stop reader for some reason. (laughs) Derek and Drew preserve their lead. They're like, oh, we did it without the fast forward this time. And I'm thinking, you guys had a huge jump on being able to pick the best flight. The only way you can brag about your first place finish is the fact that you beat the five other teams who were on the same bus as you. But it wasn't a true victory in terms of beating the all nine other teams who were in this leg. And Ken and Gerard finished this leg in second place. And then Michael and Kathy show up to the roadblock all alone because I guess this roadblock probably took them took all the teams five, ten, fifteen minutes, I'm gonna guess. <laughs> so they're already running to the mat. Flowing Zach are third? Yes, yeah, Derek and Drew, Ken and Gerard, then Flo and Zach, then Aaron and Ariane. Heather and Eve, after Heather was too strong for the hammer throw, which still is a quote that gets me every time. It's like, yeah, Heather, you're 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 stronger than professional Scottish Highland gamers. That is the excuse that I've heard is that I mean, I'm just too strong to do this physical exercise. It's an excuse I am gonna take into my real life, I think. And then Sixth place is Michael and Kathy. Then Andrew has the worst rap song I think I've ever heard on The Amazing Race. Oh, it's abysmal. I'm like, what is that? Stop singing. It's just awful. He's 21 years old. <laughs> and it's 2002. Yeah. <laughs> it reminded me of Godfrey from season three of Big Brother Canada. That's, that's how bad the rap was. Andrew's not signing, a, signing to a record label anytime soon. Cash Money Records will not be signing him. Then for the second episode in a row, John Vito and Jill get like half a second of airtime at a task just because, once again, everyone it's split between half the teams being in front of them, half the teams behind them, and they are completely on their own, especially with the second bus where everyone's either two hours ahead or four hours behind. My favourite thing about the John Vito and Jill just appearing thing is the fact they are the only team we don't even see complete the roadblock or do the roadblock. We see Jill have one small attempt at the caper toss and then they just literally appear at the pit stop. There is nothing else. Yeah, it's just just Jill like, oh yeah, I'm feeling gamey. And then they're both saying, hmm, I think John Vito should have probably done this one since I swear he he only has 5% body fat on him. And then the Scottish guy says, oh, ah, you're too good looking for muscles, Jill. <laughs> and then the caber is ridiculously tall in contrast to Jill's height. Uh, and yep, they just check in because there's really, they're not fighting for first, they're not fighting for last. And there's a lot going on this leg. And then Terry and Ian and Andre and Damon are thinking they're in a showdown for who's going to be eliminated from this leg. Terry and Ian actually get quite a bit of a jump on Andre and Damon in the taxi ride, and then Terry opens up the roadblock clue. That person should feel gamey. And then I think Ian must have been feeling sick or something. Like, he sounds really winded here. I don't think he was trying to be macho and like, oh, no, you got to do it. He just says, oh, you've got to do it, Terry. So I'm thinking he must be feeling really off. Small bit of context about Ian that I've just remembered because I quickly had a look at their Amazing Race wiki while you were talking then. He gave up cigarettes right before going on the race. And he'd smoked a while. He smoked for over 20 years, I think. Yeah, so he probably is winded, 
purely from the fact that his lungs are fucked from smoking. Yeah, his body is probably going through a state of shock, and then this much travel isn't really helping either in stress <laughs> and the intensity. And then I like when Ian's like, yeah, you've got to do it, Terry. And Terry just hesitates and says, okay, but don't blame me if we get eliminated. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get the funniest attempt at the caber toss ever. It's so half-assed. <laughs> because... I've grown up watching a lot of strength-based competitions. They've had, they've done caber toss before, but never have I ever seen somebody like get the caber a quarter of the way up and then just try to just keep pushing the caber over like ten more <laughs> times to get it on the other side. It's like no, that's not how caber toss works, Terry. You got to flick it over in one attempt. <laughs> I laughed so hard at Terry with the caber. Because she just could not get the skill on it. And now we present American woman trying the Scottish Highland Games. <laughs> I wasn't laughing. I was going, what are you doing, woman? It's like a parody of somebody trying to grasp the Highland Games. It was so good. So anyways, Ian is looking at this thinking, um, Terry, go to a different one. Go to a different game, Terry. And then Terry says, I can't. Don't give me instructions, Ian. And Terry actually completes the caper toss before Andre and Damon show up. So they might have a shot at beating them. But then, I hate to say it, but it's tough for Terry to beat either one of two, of two young male firefighter or cops at a fire, either a firefighter or a cop young male at three very physical games. <laughs> and a little Scottish Highland game medley. So then I believe it's it's uh, Andre. I think Andre does this roadblock. Yeah, it's Andre. Yeah, Andre does the roadblock. Him and Terry actually finished this roadblock at the same time. So I don't think Andre was able to make that much time on Terry. It was, I mean, this roadblock was that easy. But it's that long dash to the castle that real where Andre and Damon absolutely smoke. Terry and Ian, no pun intended. And then Terry and Ian have a big reaction because they think they're just absolutely done. But it's like, no, you're actually team number nine. There was a team who wasn't even on the same bus as you who wasn't able to make it here. And then Ian, for some reason, references Star Trek by telling the greater, beam me up, Scotty. I assume he means like the Scottish as opposed to the guy from Star Trek. <laughs> And then we skip ahead, Denison, because the way the edit makes it play out is you think it's one of those two teams going home, but we genuinely have forgotten about Dennis and Andrew because they show up in their limo. It's way after Terry and Ian and Andre and Damon have even checked in and feels like, yeah, even with taking the fast forward, you're gone. You're eliminated from the race. And it turns into this big controversial thing online. Even 19 years later, there's still people who say, well, the fast forward was dumb because in season three, Dennis and Andrew took the fast forward and they were still in last place. What good is the fast forward if you can't make up time? And I'm thinking Dennis and Andrew probably still made up about six hours or so or eight hours on all the other teams. Mm -hmm. People just forget that they were over a full day behind Derek and Drew. And 12 hours behind that last bus. They probably got to Scotland about 8 o'clock in the evening. 
they probably checked in sometime around eight o'clock in the evening, I guess. And this would have been August. No, it would have been August. It was dark, so it's probably probably ten o'clock in the evening they got there. Yeah, ten o'clock in the evening that they got there. Derek and Drew easily checked in. It was daytime, and it was very daytime, so it's probably midday at the absolute latest that Derek and Drew checked in. Yeah, I'm trying to think when they check in or when they check out at the start of episode four. It is a while behind. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the main thing here is Dennis and Andrew's fast forward still made up as much time as any of the other first two fast forwards we've we've seen so far this season. It's just, I mean, you can't expect a fast forward to make up a 20 hour or an 18 hour deficit on the first bus. It just doesn't happen. No. <laughs> Let alone 12 hours on this last bus. Derek and Drew left at 10.56, by the way. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that makes sense. So they probably checked in at 10.56am in that case. What would be funny if this was a non-elimination? Oh yeah, Des and Andrew, you're still in the race. <laughs> Can you imagine? Jesus. Oh god. Because then I think that would be a record. I don't think a team has had to be start out uh... <laughs> Oh no, no, and then it was all because oh, that's where they were only like 12 hours behind. Yeah, never mind, that would not have been a record. So if Terry and Ian checked in at about 5 say half five in the evening, which is likely, then Dennis and Andrew probably checked in easily about half ten. They still made up a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, Dennis and Andrew are gone, and 19 years later, Andrew appears on Naked and Afraid. And lasts 13 days before being medevaxxed because of MRSA. No tanks on Naked and Afraid. I, I, have, no, I have no thoughts on Dennis and Andrew, by the way. <laughs> they were a team. They were a team on The Amazing Race 3, and that is all that we need to know. So next time, teams head to Portugal, the gloves are off, the Americans invade the streets, and one of the most ridiculous foot races in Amazing Race history happens in Porto. Perhaps the most ridiculous foot race. Yeah. And we get the first major the first major equalizer of the season, and it only took them four episodes to do it. It is a very interesting episode next one. Dare I say controversial? Definitely controversial ending. 100% controversial. So have you guys got anything else you want to say? No, that's it. Nope. In that case, thank you for listening to our Amazing Race recap. We will be back next week to recap episode number four. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube or Instagram where we are RTV Warriors. Or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at logsipkwacky. Michelle is bear3333333. And I'm MJ Harmstone. See you next week. Peace out and just chill till the next episode. Bye. You even remembered your outro. I'm proud of you.